Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. Welcome back to the FemiPod for episode 66. I am joined by the beautiful Lids, of course, and we are lucky enough to have Claire Badenhurst back on the pod this week. Claire is the Femi expert in sport and exercise science. As many of you may already know, Claire is a weapon in the research department, leading the way at Massey University with a focus on women's health and well-being. We had Claire on the pod not too long ago for episode 59, and we highly recommend giving that one a listen. Today, we're excited to chat to Claire about one of her big passions, iron and female athletes. As female athletes, Lids and I have both suffered from low iron, and for Lids, this is something ongoing for her. The research for women is so important because low iron can have a really large negative impact on sport and energy levels. So let's get into it. Yeah, thank you for being with us today. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Thanks, girls, for having me back on. I love having a chat with you guys. Yeah, we're so lucky to have you back on, and I am personally very excited about this conversation, selfishly. Can you explain what low iron is and how it affects women, especially around physical performance? Yeah, of course. I think almost dialing it back, it's almost we've got to look at why iron is actually important for us to have in our bodies. Now, we often describe it as one of the key Um, I guess, minerals that our human bodies need because it forms a very crucial functional component within our red blood cells that allows us to transport oxygen around our body. So it forms that key component of the protein hemoglobin, which is found in your red blood cells. But on top of that, it's actually um, also part of a lot of uh, chemical enzymes in our body that actually support processes like energy production, immune function, DNA synthesis, all those kind of background processes. So you've almost got this um, mineral that has so many crucial roles. Most people think of it importantly in terms of transporting oxygen, but it has these other influences as well. So you need to have a decent amount of iron in your body so that you are able to really effectively transport oxygen around your body, make really good quality red blood cells, um, but as well also support a lot of these basic physiological functions. So energy production, immune, a whole host of other ones as well. So knowing how important iron is as a functional mineral within your body means that you have a bit more of an appreciation when the amount of iron in your body starts getting lower. Because as soon as that starts falling lower, what we generally tend to see is declines in all of those key areas where it's involved. Um, So in a lot of the sports research, particularly when someone gets iron depleted, which is the level where their body's iron stores start to reduce, then a lot of the research has shown um, reductions in motivation, increases in rating of perceived exertion. So how hard you're finding that level of activity you might just feel a bit sluggish, a bit blur, might have a bit of a brain fog. Um, but your actual aerobic performance might not necessarily be affected. 
However, as your iron levels progress lower and lower, if your iron stores get to a point that they're low enough to actually compromise the quality of your red blood cells, which means you're actually producing uh, red blood cells that don't have very good hemoglobin content in them, then your oxygen carrying capacity is affected. And that's when you present with iron deficiency anemia. Um, and at this point, usually we see very big drop-offs in athletes' performance because their ability to transport oxygen and utilize it within their body is compromised. So then you start seeing like sharp declines in performance beyond just almost that like, I feel tired, I'm not motivated or anything like that. So it's a very much a staged approach to getting to that point. Um, I guess one of the key areas that I often have issues at with in sport is that a lot of females might go and get their iron levels checked but unfortunately the current um, I guess parameters in around that like doctors might pick up um, especially ones maybe not within sport are more specific around iron deficiency anemia by that point the athlete's feeling so horrendous that like the ambulance has driven off the cliff basically. There's no real preventative, I guess, levels that we kind of pick up and check. So there is a lot of education that needs to actually go around the progressive decline in iron stores and why you might actually feel a little bit sluggish, a little bit unmotivated, a little bit like exercise and life's feeling a bit harder before you maybe start seeing severe changes in your aerobic performance. Um, did that answer most of that question? <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. I'd love to dive into the numbers. Like, I think a lot of us are familiar with getting our iron tested and getting our blood levels tested. But what do the numbers actually mean? Like, how low is low when you're talking about low iron? I know for me, I've had low iron my whole life, but I've had my iron levels down to three at one point in my life, which was horrific and that was when I was a teenager um, but even now you know like my iron levels might sit around 20 to 25 and some doctors consider that okay but I don't feel okay so like how do we know what sort of numbers should we be looking out for? This is like a really great discussion point because there is more and more research that's coming out now that's actually looking at what are the I guess the key measures that you actually need to include in your um, blood test when you go for your iron levels to be checked, but also how do they, I guess, correspond to other physiological markers in your body and hormones that help regulate iron. At, I guess, the general consensus right now in amongst us sports scientists that have done a lot of research in this area is that you need to, at minimum, when you go for your blood test, have serum ferritin, which is the marker of your body's iron stores. You need to have hemoglobin in there because that's going to tell you about your whether the quality of your red blood cells, the concentration, like whether or not that iron is getting used into that or if there's that presence of anemia that has occurred or not. It's not the best measure in the world, but it's better than not having it there at all. And then having other measures um, such as your transfer and saturation, which gives you a good indicator of how much iron is actually being transported in and around your body. 
um, and if you're also able to get transferrin receptor, um, which will tell you um, basically how how much your body actually requires iron. So it's basically the receptor on your cells. When your body needs iron, this receptor's expression is a lot higher in your body because it's wanting to get iron into those cells. If you've got enough iron, the expression generally sits on the lower side because you are not really needing a huge amount at that time. So you actually, when you go and get a blood test, it's in your best interest to ask not just for your iron stores, but actually to ask for full iron studies plus hemoglobin or red blood cell counts as well, so that you have the full set of information there for yourself and for your doctor. Now, when it comes to those stages of iron deficiency, we generally consider stage one iron deficiency, which is where your body's iron stores um, are depleted. So this is typically in sports science referred to around um, serum ferritin levels between 30 and 35. It's very individual dependent. Um, and so that tends to be what we call stage one um, iron depletion. So iron stores are falling low and you might start be getting some of that like motivation, increase in radio perceived exertion around there. They reckon it occurs around there. Um, because that's the point where generally we see um, you become a bit non-responsive to one of the hormones that regulates iron absorption. So if that hormones are present at that level, it means your body's trying to maximally absorb iron. It's not having to regulate the iron intake. So that's pretty much the start of stage one. Then they reckon stage two happens in and around that um body iron stores a serum ferritin level of around 20. And then there's a few other, I guess, red blood cell indices that will change in and around there, just to keep in mind. But if those two stages aren't picked up and you just kind of carry on progressing down that, I guess, spectrum of iron deficiency, generally you'll get to iron deficiency anemia, which is where your body's iron stores are incredibly low, usually picked up at less than 10. And as a female, your hemoglobin needs to drop below, I think, 120 um, grams or milligrams per liter around there. So for it to be classified as iron deficiency anemia, not only do you need the low iron stores, but you need very low hemoglobin. And the other two levels, iron stores will fall low, hemoglobin might stay normal, but you might start seeing um, increases in the tissue iron need markers so that transferrin receptor and stuff like that so if your iron levels are falling low but your tissue iron needs are going up that's indicating that your body's kind of crying out for this mineral in your body right now and it might need a bit of help and is it about that time like when i guess the athlete does become classified as anemic where training should be being pulled back or like what do you suggest where we kind of have to take that step to like pull back training load to help the iron levels get back up? I guess my kind of preference um, and what I always tell students as well is, especially when working with like dietetic students, is my, the best thing I always suggest is um, always first do no harm, then look after the athlete's health because a healthy athlete will perform well. And so 
at that point where the individual feels like and they're communicating to their coach that things just don't feel good, then what's the point in flogging a dead horse? Like there's no point in you just being like, well, toughen up, princess, put your big girl panties on and let's get going. Like, sure, there's a time and place for that occasionally. Um, But then there's other times when that's absolutely not required. And generally, if someone is consistently showing up week on week and this has been going on for ages and they're just not feeling good, then ramping up the training is not going to be any better. And so that's where I think that athlete-coach relationship becomes incredibly important. So especially if someone's anemic, I would say definitely look at dialing it back, seeing if they can get the appropriate medical support and I guess nutritional support as well, because at anemic levels, you kind of want both medical intervention, but also nutritional review to see how you can support that iron status Um, getting up to a required level at stage one and stage two iron depletion yes you can start taking oral iron supplements but also having that nutritional insight but then that's where it becomes really important to listen to the individual and just kind of move with how they feel and they respond to that training Um, so there's I wouldn't say there's any hard and fast rules but just being aware of it um, and I think feeling okay with talking about that because I think what I've often seen in sports is that it's uh, almost like a badge of honor to exercise when you're tired and when you're run down and so if you can push through and continuously dig yourself into that hole some in, like it's almost like we've grown up in a culture where we've normalized that um And as I said, yes, sometimes there is like you're being a bit stroppy and you're just having a moment and then you're like, you know what, I can do this. And it's probably a good idea for me to do exercise and push myself. I'm like, I'm not saying that's definitely not the case. But, yeah, I think as well there's so many times and so many instances that I can recall where I myself or other athletes that I've worked with or um, I guess people that I've trained with have literally just dug themselves into a hole because they thought that being this tired with training is normal. And then it's taken months before they've actually gone and checked. And that's usually when you see like they end up so iron depleted or something else has gone wrong. And it's just like, Phew. so yeah, I think not necessarily making that fatigue a badge of honor, but actually just being okay with talking about being like I'm just not feeling it (laughs) so true it's not fun when you feel like crap and Mm. trying to train hard eventually get to a point we just think what's the point um is it I just have a quick question before diving into the next one as well are people affected differently by low iron because I know people who have had low iron at like level nine and Mm. still run really well and seem to be able to push hard and then like for me, when it's gotten down into the twenties, I feel like crap because mine is probably higher than others. I don't know. Like it normally can sit around the sixties if I'm lucky. Um, but yeah, are people affected differently? Yeah, it's pretty much like most physiology. It's it's I often joke with people that it's amazing as a physiologist how much I've got to thank psychology for what I study. 
um, because there's going to be so much variability between individuals based on their experience, how they experience that symptoms, but also what else is happening in and around their life at that point in time. So if you are maybe incredibly stressed out, you've got a very high workload, maybe that's affecting your sleep, and then you're trying to train, and then your iron levels are maybe a little bit low, you're probably not going to be having a really good time. Like You're probably going to be feeling quite flat if you're compared to someone else who's maybe hasn't got that workload, is maybe just like uni, home, no real tests, no real life stresses, still sleeping, like they could probably get by quite fine. Um, It's almost like those menstrual cycle symptoms. They're so individual and unique to each female. And there's so many other things that we have no idea really impact that individual variability um, to say that you will generally always feel this would probably not do any individual justice because then we just miss the whole lot of population that present with symptoms completely differently. So there's like almost like rough guidelines on how you could respond and feel, but that's definitely not like a blanket approach to everyone. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Cool. Uh, I'd love to like dive into a little bit about your own research and if you can give us and the listeners a rundown of the research that you've done around iron, because we know that's something you're really passionate about, um, but especially around yeah female athletes um, and iron today. Oh, of course. Like, so iron was the first topic I started researching a long time ago now. Um, <laughs> um, and I did a lot of work actually in iron regulation. So looking at the hormone that regulates um, our iron absorption and how we maintain iron levels within our body in endurance athletes. And I actually looked a lot at, I guess, that carbohydrate intake before or after exercise um, before and after exercise, sorry, and how that influences that hormones, um, I guess, patterns after exercise um, and how that influences then iron status in endurance athletes. Um, so that was my starting point in research. And then from there, um, moving to New Zealand, I have to admit, I generally got sick and tired of reading the same line in all research papers, which... I always put as like, whoa, the poor female, she's always going to be iron deficient because she menstruates. Um, And I was just like, no offense, 50% of the population can't evolve on such bad terms and conditions. Um, So there has to be other elements of physiology that we've got to be looking at here. There's actually got to be other reasons other than the fact that I menstruate that result in me being iron deficient, which kind of has launched the next stages of my research career. So. We've done a lot of work looking at um, iron and vitamin D status in um, females within New Zealand, um, finding or seeing if there is actually an association there because vitamin D levels have been shown to affect this hormone that affects um, iron regulation and absorption. Um, We didn't actually find like a exact association between these two minerals in the populations that we looked at but what we did find was that um, females that were more likely to be iron deficient were often vitamin d deficient as well and there were some females where i was literally putting in their data for both of those minerals and i was just like honestly i have no idea how you get out of bed in the morning like 
It was shocking in some cases. Um, we've looked at dietary intake in young girls. We've looked at, um, I guess, factors that predict iron status with often nutritional um, iron coming out as one of the leading reasons for variability in iron status, particularly around, around females. Um, and then a lot of upcoming research will actually be looking now at um, more specifically the menstrual cycle. So looking at ovulation status and reproductive hormone levels, how does that influence the presence of heavy menstrual bleeding? Um, because heavy menstrual bleeding is um, going to naturally increase our risk as females um, or people who menstruate, um, their risk of iron deficiency. Um so actually having a look at that, then looking at the variability in the hormone that regulates um, iron status and metabolism, and if that actually fluctuates and changes throughout the menstrual cycle to maybe, I guess, counter that fact that we are like losing a valuable source of iron every time we do menstruate. Um, and then other research projects might actually be looking at more effective ways in which we can educate, but also quantify um, heavy menstrual blood flow in females. So a few exciting projects coming up that I'm really looking forward to because they're going to have such incredible insights in terms of actually piecing that insight from how does a menstrual cycle and menstruation actually influence female iron status. Yeah, it's so interesting. I have a bit of a funny story for you. When I was a teenage girl, I remember I had a couple of episodes in races where I had quite bad breathing and I was suffering so bad in the race that I pulled out of two races. So I ended up going to the doctor about it to get kind of tested to figure out what was going on. And I had my period at this stage, I think I was like 15 or 16. So I'd gone through puberty and I didn't realize that I had a heavy period at the time compared to everyone else because no one spoke about it. So I thought mm -hmm. what I was going through at the time was completely normal. And when I went to the doctor, they put me on like an asthma test. I'm not sure what they're called. Um, and they told me that I had severe asthma. And it was funny because I remember thinking in that moment, like, this only has occurred to me a couple of times at particular times, like, and it has been around my period. And like, I had no idea about menstrual cycles or my period or anything really at the moment. But I remember being like, I don't have severe asthma, like 95% of the time I'm completely fine. Um, but there's this one period of time where I'm having these like episodes of asthma in a race when I'm pushing myself and after my period. And I remember saying to the doctor, is there a link between like my period and my low iron? And I remember the doctor being like, oh no, like absolutely not. Like there's nothing to do with it and brushed it off completely. And now it's like 15, 16 years later. And it's finally kind of validating what I always thought because I, <laughs> as women, we know our bodies best. Like I clearly knew that there was something going on, but there was no like evidence to prove that. And the doctors were obviously uneducated about it. So yeah. it's so exciting to hear that like this research is being done and these kind of dots are being connected and that's a pretty obvious thing that like we're menstruating, we're losing blood, we're losing iron. We kind of probably, if we were losing the amount that I lose, I probably mm. suffer from that. Is there anything else around the menstrual cycle that you know today that might also affect our iron levels or is it really just that loss of blood? 
Well, I think it, like one of the most fascinating areas that I am so keen to get stuck into with this upcoming research, like hopefully we should start actually getting like participants in in the next like two months. So I'm really excited for this um, is it was probably only in about. So I think it may be like 2015, 2016 only this research came out where they'd actually looked at this hormone, it's called hepcidin, that regulates iron absorption. Um, and it's the key way in which our body actually, I guess, regulates the amount of iron we take into our body. Um, and it's like a really important way in which we actually maintain the normal levels of iron in our body. Um, and they were able to plot how hepcidin changes throughout the menstrual cycle in um, females. Now, they did only collect data at certain time points, so they have had to model it um, quite a bit. But this research actually then um, kind of showed that in naturally menstruating females, when they are in that early follicular phase and they are menstruating, hepcidin levels actually fall quite low, which you could almost consider as like a like a physiological counter mechanism to the fact that you're losing iron. So of course you're going to suppress this hormone to enable you to maximally absorb iron at this point of time. Then gradually what you actually see is once menstruation stops, this hormone gradually increases throughout the cycle and then plateaus off at its normal level in the luteal phase, almost to go back to just kind of regulating iron intake based on food intake or inflammation in your body or exercise um, and just kind of respond to whatever your, I guess, resting iron status is. So iron stores, transport, everything present in there. So there's actually almost like this incredible physiological counter mechanism that our body maybe has as females that is, yes, you are losing iron. You are losing maybe like one gram of iron within your menstrual bleed if you say are bleeding less than like 80 mils over that time because around that 80 mils is that threshold for what we classify right now as heavy menstrual bleeding. Anything less than that, they have actually looked at quantifying the amount of iron and then it's about one gram within that entire menstrual bleeding period. If it's heavy menstrual bleeding, it does increase like three to four times that. But yeah, your hormone level that allows you to maximally absorb iron, it falls so low that your body's actually able to get more of it in during that time. But we are actually looking more and more at getting research that measures that in so many different females so that we can actually go, yes, this actually does occur. Like there theoretically, like I'm saying theoretically, because it has not yet been proven. Um, but theoretically, in a large group of females, like there actually might be times of our cycle where we might actually be more receptive to actually absorbing iron. And it might mean that like eating steak while you're on your period might be a really good idea. Might. Prefacing this, we need to do more research in this space, but preliminary results would suggest that's quite favorable. So I think that is like a beautiful thing that it's actually like, it's not because I menstruate as a female that I'm more prone to iron deficiency. There are other things that could affect that. It could be that I'm a heavy menstrual bleeder. It could be changes in my reproductive hormones. It could be the fact that I'm maybe anovulatory. It could be dietary intake. It could be degree of inflammation. 
just because I menstruate doesn't mean that I'm going to suddenly show up with iron deficiency at some point in my life. And I think we need to maybe look at how we can show that in our research. Mm, that makes sense. Oh, crazy. I'm going to go hard on iron rich foods and my supplements when I'm on my period now and see, see how it goes. That's exciting. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> your test bunny and lids as well that's that's so interesting and it, yeah it's cool that our body's like doing probably doing that to help us get mm. more iron um during that time um this is kind of a random one but yeah. Liz and I've talked about this before and we heard about running specifically and like impact sports that you can lose iron through that is that true and why does that happen people that are physically active generally have a higher risk of iron deficiency Um, and that's because exercise itself actually accelerates or encourages a lot of the ways in which we naturally lose iron in our body now we don't have a specific mechanism in our body that will allow us to lose iron and generally unlike most other vitamins and minerals we don't pee a lot of it out like you're not urinating it all out so The way in which we regulate it is mainly through this absorption and this hormone regulation. But other ways in which you can lose iron, even though not specific to iron, but they can accumulate and result in iron loss, is through um, sweating, gastrointestinal bleeding, so some of um, iron in like fecal matter and stuff like that. Um, So those are two key things that generally happen almost most times that you're exercising, probably without you even realizing. Sweating, you realize the gastrointestinal bleeding, maybe not so much, but very small amounts of that can occur. With weight-bearing exercise and pretty much with most exercise, what you naturally see is this increase in what we call hemolysis. Um, So I'm sure everyone's, I say I'm sure everyone, (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong here, but generally when you run, you know that when you're running, there is you're putting force down on the ground and there's a counter force coming back up through your body so some people might know that phrase of like every time you run there is four to five or five to six times your body weight coming back up through your body as like ground reaction force now that kind of ground reaction force continuously happening is causing the very flimsy one-celled red blood cells to break and that is the process of hemolysis. So they break because they're not the most highly integrity cells in our body. And they spill their contents out into your red blood cells. Your white blood cells go pick up the debris, transport it back to your bone marrow. You make new red blood cells. We all carry on happy days. So it's a completely natural process. But regular exercise means that you're constantly spilling the contents of your red blood cells out into circulation, which might then be filtered out at your kidneys or lost through sweat or lost through that gastrointestinal bleeding. So in single one-off kind of exercise sessions, all of that cumulatively um, is probably not going to result in a huge amount of iron being lost. But someone that's a regular exercise or someone that's an athlete exercises two, three times a day, seven days a week, that's consistently happening over and over and over again, which means compared to your natural normal iron losses, which are maybe like one to two milligrams a day, like all of a sudden you're adding in ways in which you can accelerate that loss of iron. Then on top of that, there 
like literally this was the foundation of my PhD, which was this hormone that regulates iron, which they literally only found in like 2001. So in science terms, this is fairly new stuff. Um, but they found after exercise, about three hours after exercise, you actually get a peak in this hormone um, as a result of exercise naturally causing an inflammatory state in your body, which you need to adapt and respond to, um, which is how we get better. Naturally, it stimulates that adaptation process in our body. So if you exercise, causes inflammation, about three hours later, you're getting this peak in this hormone. So a peak in that hormone means you're not actually absorbing iron very effectively from the food that you're eating and you're not recycling it quickly. So if you put that into an everyday normal time frame, you exercise, you start cooling down, you chit-chat, you get stuck in traffic, you get home, then you think you might eat something. And by the time you're actually eating something, it's at that peak point where there is hormonal disruption to your ability to maximally absorb iron. So you start putting that all together with accelerated iron loss on top of normal daily iron losses, the fact that you've got a hormone potentially affecting the way in which you absorb iron and you do that continuously seven days a week for however long you train all of a sudden it starts adding up and actually there could like yes iron intake increases as soon as a female starts menstruating but actually in athletes iron intake should be a lot higher than your general population so we see higher rates of iron deficiency in men who generally well, or not menstruating, but if they're exercising, their rates of iron deficiency go from 2%, which is the prevalence of iron deficiency in sedentary men, to about 11%, which is a massive jump. So you can imagine what it's then doing in females. So you've got all those exercise elements, but then especially in the athletic population with these other narratives that we've had around dietary intake, body composition, what is that manipulation of dietary content then actually also doing to that iron status? So you've got all the ways in which you can lose it and not maximally absorb it. And then if they're maybe not fueling themselves properly, if you're not getting in the total right amount of food, you're probably not going to get in any of your micronutrients properly either. So adding that wonderful whole combination um, and rates of iron deficiency start getting to around 30 to 50% in any exercising female. So whole host of things that kind of go into that yeah wow <laughs> I understand why my iron's always so low but um so we want to be taking our iron supplements within three hours of exercise is that what you're saying yeah I think there's a really interesting piece of research that was done by a PhD student almost straight after me um, and she did this beautiful piece of work that actually looked at optimal timing of taking that supplement. Um, and it actually turns out like if you can take it in the morning and they tested it within the first 30 minutes of finishing exercise, generally we just say in the morning, hopefully either before or immediately after exercise, that actually increased the, I guess, the total amount of iron you could absorb from that supplement compared to the afternoon so if you can take your supplement in the morning probably take it either as close to before or after exercise as you can if you're not like iron deficient like deficient 
stage two, stage three anemic, probably best to start taking it um, in the morning. And once you get to that point where it's like relatively normal iron stores, so 35 and above for serum ferritin, maybe consider taking it every second day just to make sure that you're continuously maximizing iron absorption. Because if you take it every second day, again, that's actually shown to have less of an effect in peaking that hormone that affects iron absorption. And you can actually maximize your absorption in that way. So morning, and once you get beyond iron deficient classifications, take it every second day. Amazing. And we know you're not a dietitian, but is there any other things that you would recommend for women to kind of stay on top of their iron levels when it comes to the food or even in training are there things that we can be doing that will help kind of stay on top of low iron? Yeah. Well, honestly, my first recommendation is like nutritional strategies are the best preventative mechanism that you can use. So if you're stuck on how to do that, make sure you do reach out to a registered nutritionist or dietitian. Like they are going to be your best resource for this kind of information. But like general tips um, would be actually looking at that carbohydrate intake. Um, We've actually found that lots of our carbohydrates are actually um, fortified with iron. So they can actually be quite a beneficial source of iron intake, particularly if maybe you are a vegetarian or a vegan athlete. Um, so there's actually research that's found that there's no difference in iron status between like vegan vegetarians and non-vegan and vegetarians, because usually those, um, I guess, more vegetable focused dietary patterns have that high carbohydrate content that is fortified with iron. Um, But also in my research, I found that actually maintaining good carbohydrate intake reduced that inflammatory response and had a very beneficial impact on lowering that um, hormone hepcidin after exercise. So it could aid that suppression of that hormone and try assist that iron absorption but actually consulting with a nutritionist or dietitian can be really good. And actually looking at what we call your bioavailability of iron. So that's looking at the combination of foods that you eat. Are you eating enough iron-rich foods, both heme, which is your animal products, or your non-heme, so your more vegetable, beans, legumes, all of that kind of products? Are you eating them with foods that actually enhance iron absorption, so with maybe more citrus-based fruit, uh, foods and vegetables? Um, or are you actually eating them with iron inhibitors, so phytates and fibers and things like that? And actually looking at those combinations, so it's not it's not great if you're eating like really high iron-rich food with maybe an inhibitor because you're almost like countering that quite a bit. Um, So actually maybe having a look at that entire diet bioavailability and actually looking at those combinations can be as important to the total amount of iron that you're eating throughout the day as well. Yeah, it's so helpful. And and what about blood tests? I think, you know, a big problem that I've struggled with in the past and still do is the nuisance of every three months having to go to my doctor to get a script to then go to the blood test to do my blood test to then go back to my doctor to get my results and then figure out what I need to do whether it's an infusion or continue supplements whatever like it's a long process every three months to do that like 
what do you recommend for athletes in particular, but women in general as well? Like how often should we be getting those tests done and is there an easier way about it? Honestly, Liz, I wish there was an easier way. <laughs> It'd be nice to just have like a finger prick test that you could do at home, hey? Um, but unfortunately, I don't think they've come up with that yet. Um, so right now, generally, what we suggest is if you have had a previous diagnosis of iron deficiency, if you're interested in preventative health care, um, which is something I'm kind of a little bit for there, is that it does sometimes take a bit more of initiative there as the athlete to kind of go into your doctor and request that kind of screening. Um, I've found that generally when I was doing triathlons, going into my doctor at three to four months, um, there is research that suggests in high-performing athletes, especially if they've had a diagnosis of iron deficiency, they need to be going quarterly throughout the year. So like, yeah, every three months or so to um, just kind of be like, I just like, I'm an athlete, I'm a high-performing athlete. I'm interested in making sure that I stay on top of my health and my performance. Am I able to get a screening test of my um, iron studies so that I can keep on top of my own training and my own health? Um, most of the time I've had, I've been very fortunate. I've had um, GPs and stuff that have been quite willing to do that. But right now, because it's, maybe a controversial opinion, but it's like, I don't think right now we look a lot at preventative me medicine. We look at corrective. Um, so unfortunately, if you're interested in preventative, it takes initiative on your half to kind of go in and do that. So if you haven't ever been diagnosed with iron deficiency, going in twice a year. So maybe the middle of the year, end of the year or whenever you feel just to kind of make sure that everything's okay and to care along nicely but if you have had that diagnosis unfortunately it does require that constant um kind of going in hopefully one day we'll have an at-home test i mean they figured out how to do everything else surely by now we can figure out how to figure out how to test iron levels well, but i I will say for my Australian friends, there is now an app where you can get scripts sent directly to you. It's called Instant Scripts. This is not a paid ad for it at all, but <laughs> it actually has made my life a lot easier since I have found it recently. And you can get a script to go get your iron tested just sent to your email without mm -hmm. actually physically have to going, having to go into the doctor. So it does help with timing. But yeah, I definitely need to take more initiative and um, actually like get my blood tested way more often. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, and I guess just other stuff that we usually recommend because iron is, does react to inflammation. So we often say like, try to be a little bit well rested, try aim for a morning test, make sure you're well hydrated. If anything, that's going to actually help your blood test. If you're dehydrated, like that's often when you hear nightmares about girls going in and they're like, they jabbed me like five times. It's like, oh gosh. Um, but making sure that you're well rested so probably not doing any muscle damaging exercise like 12 hours before you go in and have your blood test because as soon as there is that high degree of inflammation in your body that might raise a lot of your iron parameters because they are what we call an acute phase um like protein so it responds to inflammation and increases so if there's inflammation there it will mask any um, depletion or deficiency that you might have so same thing goes if you're feeling sick 
um, or you think you've got a cold or flu or something like that, don't go get your iron levels checked because you probably won't come up as deficient. Go when you feel better. Um, and yeah, preferably go in the morning. Interesting. Yeah, I had no idea that. It was funny when you talked about being prepped. I did like a hard session once, absolutely did. And I went to the blood test and they couldn't get my blood. They tried like five times, but I was like, just, they were like, have you been training? I was like, yeah. And then I was pretty much a shriveled up prune and I had no, my blood wasn't moving in my body. I love it. So that's good advice. Um, I want to talk a little bit about hormonal contraceptives. Uh, can you explain the difference between them and natural menstruation, the effect that they have, uh, that hormonal contraceptions have on iron levels versus someone naturally menstruating? And obviously there's so many variations of naturally menstruating as well, but um, mm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is like a, a really interesting, um, I guess, discussion point because generally what is kind of put out there is that um, – Females that are on hormonal contraceptives are always naturally going to have higher iron levels than those that are naturally menstruating, um, particularly if the hormonal contraceptive, whichever one you're using, has actually um, enabled you to stop menstruating. So as soon as you're not having that menstrual blood loss, depending on your type of um, hormonal contraception that you're using, um, then, of course, you've, I guess, eliminated one of the variables where you may lose iron so naturally that might mean that your iron levels might stay elevated a bit more consistently compared to a naturally menstruating female um i guess there is also an element of like behavioral use especially when it comes to hormonal oral contraceptives um so if a female is generally using that oral contraceptive to actually miss their period on purpose for timing and everything like that then again generally they might not be having that menstrual bleed so again elimination of an avenue in which you've actually lost um menstrual blood but actually when you look at some of the more recent research um i think there was one done in 2020 and like another one that was kind of done around 2007 when they actually looked at um i guess prevalence of iron deficiency between naturally menstruating females and those on um in this case oral contraceptive pill users they actually didn't find much of a difference between the two um, cohorts there so that's where it starts raising that really interesting discussion about what are the other factors then that predispose um, maybe naturally menstruating females to become iron deficient of which like what are the factors that are actually pinch, uh, increasing the risk of heavy menstrual bleeding becomes more of the question than the fact that it's just menstrual blood loss so um, it's bit like that is an area to consider or we need to consider that those females in those studies using oral contraceptives weren't behaviorally using those pills to purposely skip their um, menstrual bleed. Um, while a lot of the research has looked at the combined oral contraceptive pill and how that affects prevalence of iron deficiency, um, 
and found like no real difference. One area that I have found particularly interesting is the fact that that transparent saturation, so that mark of how much iron within your body, um, because of those synthetic hormones, particularly synthetic estrogen um, in the oral contraceptive pill and how that's metabolized and the hepatic effects of that, um, you actually see a lot of research showing that females on oral contraceptive pills consistently show up with exaggerated transparent saturation levels to the level that they might actually be picked up as presenting with hemochromatosis, which is excessive iron levels. So um, if you are a female that's using combined oral contraceptives and you go for your iron levels um, and you come out with a score and your doctor maybe goes, oh, you're at risk of exaggerated um or excessive iron levels, there is a possibility that that is very strongly linked to the hormonal contraceptive. But then as we get into that more and more, we know that there's so many different combinations of hormonal contraceptives, how that influences the hormones, how that affects a single female, that a lot of the research actually hasn't controlled for the various different brands and types of hormonal contraceptives. So the actual volume of synthetic hormones and the impact that it has on either your hepcidin levels and how you regulate that, your transferrin saturation and the markers that it presents with, um, we honestly have no idea. Most of the research has, as I said, primarily looked at combined oral contraceptives. The research that's actually like that has maybe looked at the effects of the progesterone only pill or the hormonal IUD and any of those on either prevalence of iron deficiency, um, your hepcidin kinetics or your iron regulation kinetics or anything like that. Um, I have not seen it. And most of that stuff does come across my desk. So, um, yeah, it's a, a massive gaping hole because everyone's just assumed that when you're on the hormonal contraceptive, you are less likely to be iron deficient. And so that's about where that research is at right now, which is kind of shocking, actually. <laughs> it's so wild. Can I just say um, excessive hemochromatosis is one of the smartest words I've ever heard. Um, but it just shows that you are a bucket of wisdom, um, but there is so much education to be done in this space and so much learning. And, you know, we hear stories all the time of women going to doctors and being put on oral contraceptives or any form of contraception and not understanding kind of the effects of it. And I mean, this is a whole nother step of like actually understanding when it comes to I am how it can affect us as well. And we're just so lucky to have people like yourself who are actually doing this research and um, figuring it out for us women. But what other research needs to be done to better understand kind of this complex issue and space for women? Oh, honestly, I think we're literally just scratching the surface. Hey, like we've actually only just suddenly had the penny drop that like how our physiology responds to the menstrual cycle could mean that we regulate iron and absorb iron differently and have different points in the, our cycle that could be affected. We need to maybe have a look at um, how these other forms of hormonal contraceptives influence our ability to regulate iron and how does that actually impact our presentation or in those blood forms because effectively all the blood test is is a single time point measurement like physiology is so dynamic it's so constantly changing that all you've done is measured 
how your body's responding at that single time point. So we don't really understand the full dynamics of that situation and what that represents there and how do all these different forms of hormones and reproductive status influence that like yes there's studies that's actually looked at how estrogen and progesterone maybe affect hepcidin in particular and impacted secretion but a lot of that stuff is either done in like cell studies animal studies females receiving IVF who have like super physiological doses of hormones so actually understanding the nuances of that and what it means to be a female and how that is regulated and then how that is translated to maybe our supplement strategy or our nutritional strategies whether or not we actually need to consider that in any of those strategies is another question but right now there's so many unanswered questions because it's just been assumed that I menstruate and so iron deficiency is somewhere in my future. So, yeah, I, I'm so excited to kind of just kind of get into this and just see where it ends up because there's just so many unanswered questions right now. And the more it's one of those things like it said, like the more you dive into a topic, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I end up panicking that I'm like, I just don't know enough. And then you realize that there's actually not more that you can find. And then it's just like more panicking juicing. I'm like, oh, my God. So I feel about um, <laughs> women's health in general. I feel like I panic because the world doesn't know enough. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> don't worry, me too. So we can bond on that. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that was um so amazing. So much information. You yeah, you have so much wisdom to share and we're so lucky to have you on our team. And I know that was a very science heavy episode. So hopefully everyone can keep up. Um, if not, go back and listen again because I think it's so important for us all to understand the impact of our menstrual cycle and low iron in women. But we just want to finish off with two quick fire questions. Um, we want to throw you some new quick fire questions this week to end on something that's a little bit maybe more lighthearted um, and not too scientific, but maybe this is a big question actually to ask you. But if we said to you, you had all the money in the world tomorrow, what would be the one thing you would do to improve women in sport? Um, I would generally launch into um, an amazing study where we actually looked at variations in menstrual blood loss so that females could at home understand how much fluid they are losing and actually start paying direct attention to it versus just covering it up. I would like, yes, that project's going to happen. But if you gave me all of that money right now, I'd have everyone doing it just to raise awareness around there because, yeah, menstrual cycle might be taboo, but I think actually discussing menstruation is even more taboo. Mm -hmm. Love it. So needed. Um, I kind of want to answer that question, but I won't. <laughs> I'm holding it back. <laughs> holding it back. <laughs> I'm all day. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, last one, if you could be, and we know that you were, but if you could be a professional athlete in any other sport, what would it be? Oh, oh see, I, like I did running. Um, I mean, I did triathlon, but running is like generally where like the heart is. Like I just, I do generally love to do it. And I was like, oh, that would have been really cool to be like an elite runner. But yeah. 
who knows, I'm doing other stuff now. I get to help elite runners. So, you know, best of both worlds. <laughs> I love it. I mean, running's great, but I feel like there's way better sports that you could be a professional athlete in. <laughs> Maybe, but like, I don't know. I'm just not feeling that creative right now. And it's like, oh, I love it. I've been doing like a research project that's been looking at female sport uniforms and everything like that. And then when you start reading about what everyone's doing, and you're like, this is really stressful about what we have to wear when we compete. That's true. <laughs> a whole another conversation we can have another time because yeah I think that's another very important one with that we need to discuss mm. Mm. well thank you so much Claire we're so lucky to have you and um yeah super grateful for all your knowledge I'm sure so many people would have taken so much away from this episode today we will share Claire's uh, links in our show notes so you can go ahead and follow her on Instagram she's been posting some really interesting stuff lately um, but in the meantime if you want to get in touch with us you can head to our Instagram at femi.co or head to our website femi.co and Esther and I will be back in your ears next week Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. All good.